we're in a very different place than in 2008. But yet uh, the IOC's uh, narrative has not changed. Their position is political neutrality. But you know what? In times of genocide, political neutrality, it doesn't save you, unfortunately. So um, that is why we're, we have started campaigning against this idea or against the Olympics being hosted in a country that is currently committing genocide. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us today on a very exciting episode of Declarations. Today we're here to talk about the Uyghurs in China and specifically the human rights implications of hosting the Olympic Beijing Games in 2022 there. We're joined with a wonderful guest today, Zumretai Arkin. She is the Program and Advocacy Manager at the World Uyghur Congress, an umbrella based in Munich, Germany, an organization that advocates for the rights of Uyghur people and ethnic group from the province of Xinjiang in Northwest China. Zumretai graduated from University Laval with a Bachelor of Laws and graduated with a Bachelor's in International Relations from the University of Montreal in 2016. She was born in Urumqi and immigrated to Montreal, Canada at the age of 10 with her family. She got involved in the cause after witnessing the Urumqi uprising in July 2009 when she was there for the summer holidays. She has been engaged in advocacy work at the UN and calling on different UN bodies to take urgent action regarding the repression of Uyghurs. Today we also have a panelist with us, Sam Barron, who will help lead the discussion and this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zumartai. Um, before we begin this really exciting and informative discussion, I kind of like to give our listeners sort of some context on what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. So if you could um, provide us with some background information um, and some relevant um, context. Of course. Um, thank you so much for having me, Muna and Sam. Um, I'm very thrilled to be here. So just to give uh, background information on the uh, situation in Eastern which is the preferred name by Uyghurs, um, or the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, um, I'm just going to say it bluntly. It, currently, there's um, a genocide. Um, and I think with the available evidence that we have, it's pretty clear that you know crimes against humanity and crimes of genocide are being committed by the Chinese government against the Uyghur people, but also Kazakh people and other Turkic, uh, ethnic groups in, in the region. And I would say that the, the, the situation for these groups, um, ethnic groups in, in China has worsened uh, over the past decade, especially uh, with Xi Jinping um, becoming the CCP chairman, um, CCP being uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, chairman in 2014. Um, and so under his rule, any perceived difference from the Han Chinese majority, particularly CCP, um, is being perceived as a threat to the national interest by the Chinese government um, and then subsequently attacked. So everything that makes people or community unique um, is being subjected to cynicization and assimilation. So this for Uyghurs means uh, ban on language, uh, religious persecution, so criminalization of uh, religious practice, uh, such as wearing the veil for women, uh, wearing the, a beard for, for men, having many children. All of these are uh, considered as extremist signs, signs of extremism or um, religious ext extremism, exactly, to be, to be exact. Um, and also 
anything related to religion. So any cultural or religious sites, such as mosques, shrines, uh, cemeteries, uh, all of these places uh, that are very significant in Uyghur culture and um, identity are being destroyed as well. There's also a mass arbitrary detention in concentration camps. Um, as we have seen, I think most people know about the, the camp system since 2017, we've seen in, you know, in international media, this camp system that is being used to target Uyghurs and other uh, Turkic people and intern um, by the millions. So right now we currently estimate between 1.8 to 3 millions of Uyghurs and other Turkic people interned arbitrarily. So these are extrajudicial uh, detention in these camps where um, the detainees are are facing several abuses, um, including uh, recently we've discovered uh, rape, sexual abuse for women or e even men. Um, the conditions inside these camps are extremely difficult, uh, unsanitary, and especially during COVID, there was a lot of concern, concerns about how people were being treated and if they had the hygienic, um, you know, sanitation and all of that. So because these camps um, with these, you know, the, the conditions that we are aware of, it's a breeding ground for the virus to spread. So there are a lot of concerns around these camps there was also recent reporting that reported that there was an extension of, you know, the, the camp network. Um, international journalists and um, scholars have used satellite imagery to to see the extension, like expansion of these camps um, as well. And of course, recently, I'm sure that everyone has heard about Uyghur forced labor as well. Uh, forced labor is also another critical aspect of the Uyghur crisis at the moment, uh, with uh, thousands of Uyghurs being transferred out of East Turkestan to other regions in China to work in factories, um, uh, you know, for, for international brands such as Adidas, uh, Puma, Nike, uh, Zara, all of these brands who are, um, you know, using Uyghur horse labor in their supply chains. So this, this is one of the, the, the most urgent issues at the moment. There's also, of course, reports of forced uh, sterilization and abortion on Uyghur women in an attempt to really control the birth rate. And we have seen many reports, um, you know, using Chinese government's papers and statistics um, to, to come to that conclusion. And also um, the family separation policies that are in place as well, uh, where when the, the both parents are, you know, interning these camps, and uh, the, the children are taken away to um, state-run orphanages where they are really losing their identity, um, their roots as Uyghur. And so it is, you know, it exactly fits the criteria under, under the Article 2 for genocide, under the um, genocide UN Genocide Convention. So currently all of that, you know, all of these atrocities are happening. And also this is to take into account as well that there's also a massive um, a surveillance or Orwellian surveillance uh, system in place as well that uh, monitors every single aspect of you know Uyghur identity and um, the Uyghur Uyghurs are being monitored in every um, aspect of their lives and movements. So um, overall, um, that all all of these crimes taken together are, are currently being considered as genocide. Do you think that enough is being done to help this to to help spread awareness on this issue particularly with the international community 
That is a very good question. And I think uh, this is something that we have been asking for the last um, four years, because up until four years, I think there was still some degree of freedom. But uh, in the past four years, it just really escalated quickly from the camps to, you know, forced sterilization and forced labor. Um, and us as an organization, um, we have been calling on the international community for the past you know, decade to act on this because we knew that it would get uh, worse. Um, however, the international community has been very slow in responding to this crisis. Um, for example, we, one of our primary area of work is at the UN and the UN has been very, very slow. Um, and this is to be understood in a context where China has a lot of soft power within these in international institutions. Um, as a you know member of the Security Council as well, they have the veto power. And also they have a lot of uh, economic power over smaller countries uh, and a lot of influence. So it's been, it's been a lot of um, efforts from the Uyghur community, but also um, NGOs working on China to kind of raise awareness. So I think I would say that in the past four years, we've been very busy in raising awareness. Um, and now that we have reached out, reached a point where I think it's safe to say that, you know, everyone pretty much knows about the Uyghur issue. Um, now we're starting to to take action. So the international community is starting to think about concrete steps, which to be honest, they're only thinking about it because of all of the efforts that took, you know, Uyghur organizations such like ours um, or the Uyghur community or other organizations uh, push in the past years to, to, to come to this point. But um, so, for example, we've seen some, some of the concrete actions that we are seeing now is um, on the forced labor issue particularly. So um, over the summer, there was a the coalition to end Uyghur forced labor that was created, uh, which regroups over 300 organizations, from faith groups to investor alliances to NGOs, which WUC is um, actually on the steering committee. And with this coalition, we've we've been uh, very much engaging with the, these brands who are implicated in forced labor to have them to commit to our call to action, which demands these brands to exit from the Uyghur region. Because as you know, this current situation, is, it's given the current situation, it's pretty much impossible to conduct any kind of independent audits because Uyghurs or other Turkic peoples, they simply do not have the freedom to speak uh, freely. So um, their labor rights are just put aside. So in that context of, you know, forced labor and, and the lack of freedom, also, especially in the garment and textile industry, with, where like a lot of forced labor is involved in the cotton picking, um, that's a very big issue. And fun fact, 80% uh, of ch the China's cotton, uh, or it's 84, I, I forgot the exact number, but it comes from the Uyghur region. So um, at least 20% of the world global cotton, you know, comes from that region, which is, uh, you know, it, there are high chances that there, there is forced labor involved. So there's been, uh, you know, a series of steps that have been, that has been taken in, in many countries. So for example, in the US, they have uh, implemented a couple of uh, WROs would hold release orders on uh, cotton products coming directly from the region, but also um, they've banned tomato products because that's also another, um, industry where forced labor is present. Um, so there has been a couple of bans and now Canada, UK, they've also started thinking about bans and, and addressing the situation. Uh, in Australia, there's 
example, they've introduced a bill uh, proposal uh, on you know banning uh, for saber goods from the region. So I think we are now at a point where we are starting to acknowledge the urgency of the situation and uh, taking concrete, concrete steps because um, I think I think that in general, when something starts concerning you, um, you start to actually think about things um, because of course, like all these abuses are happening in Istrikistan and no one really cares because it's not happening to them. But because now forced labor is also, um, you know, in, invading our, you know, supply chains globally, I think people are, they can relate to this, right? So um, this is also something that is pushing people to think about, you know, actually trying to solve this issue yeah absolutely you know to me it seems almost unconscionable that you know the international olympic committee could even you know award um the olympic games to a country that's committed such severe repression um and abuses against um on a scale that we unlike we've ever seen um in, mo in modern history so you know in 2008 um so China has hosted the Olympics twice in the past, um, or may host the Olympics twice in the past 20 years. And in 2008, China kind of promised in the bidding stage to improve its human rights record. And obviously it failed to do this and the exact reverse happened. So why do you think that the IOC like allowed China to um, like, or like rewarded them with another games and like, what kind of message do you think this sends to the international community about that? Yeah, um, I think, you know, there, there's of course a lot of reasons why China um, has awarded the games, but one of them being that China is has, you know, economy clouds and uh, power. So this is one reason, uh, but also I, I know that the other contestants were also just as um, controversial, although these countries are actually not committing genocide. Um, and um, I think just China just has a lot of influence over any international institution. So this is kind of a hard one, but um, it's just so disappointing to see that they haven't even taken two minutes to think about the repercussions that this would create. Um, because we've seen that after 2008, when you know China was awarded the game, the 2008 uh, Olympic Summer Games, people, um, I would say, Uyghur groups, Tibetan groups, and Chinese groups have warned the international communities and the IOC itself, saying, you know, this is actually just giving China the floor for its propaganda um, and agenda and, and Chinese narrative. But uh, uh, back then, the international community saw this as an opportunity for China to be open to the world, to really open up to the world and also have this outside or Western um, concept of freedom and that it would change maybe, uh, it would influence China positively and uh, that maybe the Olympics would be uh, an opportunity to bring democracy or more freedoms to China. And so people were actually more lenient with that decision. But of course, the affected communities, we were very skeptical. And uh, we have seen after, you know, the Olympics, during the Olympics, when Tibetan, uh, a lot, hundreds and thousands of Tibetan protesters were uh, brutally cracked down. 
um, and also journalists, they did not have the freedom to, to cover as well. Um, so it was um, very unfortunate to see. You would think that the IOC would, would wake up after that, these events, but um, apparently they did not. And they awarded China another time, uh, the Winter Games, and uh, which was... Of course, now if you, if you look up look back at the situation, it's I don't know, it's ten times worse than than two thousand eight, right? So uh, not only in not only in the from the Uyghur perspective in East Turkestan, but also in Tibet, uh, there's also been you know brutal crackdowns in Tibet, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, in China as well, with all of these Chinese human rights uh, activists who are being uh, arrested and and detained. So and even in southern Mongolia, the ban on language. So we're in a very different place than in 2008, but yet uh, the IOC's uh, narrative has not changed. Their position is political neutrality. But you know what? In times of genocide, political neutrality, it doesn't save you, unfortunately. So um, that is why we're, we have started campaigning against this idea or against the Olympics being hosted in a country that is currently committing genocide. I think that's a really good point you make about political neutrality. And we've seen with, you know, sporting games, sort of like the NFL and taking a knee, um, that sports, large mass scale sports can be inherently political. Um, and I wanted your sort of opinion on that. What do you think about the Olympics? Is this sort of like a political, is it a political forum? Does it have political implications or? Or do you think it's more just a uh, political neutral institution? I think um, for me, I, I am like personally, I am in the view that uh, or of the opinion that anything is political, right? Um, and especially Olympics, like it, it's a world, like global event, a global sporting event, which brings so many different countries and different values. And you have democratic countries, undemocratic countries, um, and especially if these events are taking place in an authoritarian country where uh, crimes against humanity, genocide are being committed, it definitely will be political, whether you like it or not. Um, whether you have a personal position or not, it is political um, in its own and itself. So I think in that kind of atmosphere, I think anyone has the responsibility to question um, you know, this event or you being there. I think, you know, our current position is not, we're not asking for, for athletes to boycott this game because we know how sensitive this issue is and athletes who have, you know, sacrificed their lives to, to train for these sporting events, which is understandable. But I think before you are an athlete, you're a human being. And before going there as an athlete, you're also a human being. You have to think about what is happening on the ground. So for us, it's important that before athletes go to, to China, they should and they have the responsibility to understand what's going, what's going on in, in there. Mm -hmm. Like just compare, compare it to um, the Berlin Olympics, right? where the Nazi regime was, you know, was taking place. And um, would, would athletes think about this or would they just prioritize um, their own success over human, human lives? 
So I think you, you just have to look at the bigger picture. Um, we don't, of course, want to pressure athletes to, to commit to a boycott, but I think it's important for these athletes to know over like the overall situation, which to be honest, maybe like many of them don't know. And they have been, there has been a, many athletes in the past, uh, just in the past year who have been outspoken on the Uyghur issue and they have faced consequences. For example, if you look at Mesut Özil, he has faced consequences as well. Um, and uh, just with the NBA as well, you know, anytime that someone criticizes or has an opinion on China or the CCP, there are consequences involved. So I think it, and also it goes beyond the athletes, right? So even if for the broadcasters, um, journalists, it's going to be political, um, whether they like it or not. On our podcast, we've spoken a lot about consumers being, um, growing more vigilant about the products they consume and the brands they buy into, especially when it comes to sustainability and things like that. So what about all the corporate sponsors who are vying um, for this opportunity um, to be a part of the Olympics that are, that are going to be held in China. I want to hear your take on that. Absolutely. Um, corporate sponsors are not uh, left behind. They are also included in that, in, meaning that they also have a responsibility to know what's going on first and also to not aggravate or to not be involved, you know, in, in, in these crimes uh, because just the current situation is just so grave that they might be involved in one way or another. For example, in, you know, in forced labor, um, how are these brands or corporate sponsors making sure that in their supply chains or in their operations, they're not contributing to forced labor? Um, and how, for example, certain, uh, certain sponsors, if they are part of, you know, the, the sponsors providing, I don't know, the technology or whatsoever, how are they making sure that they are not contributing to for Saber or even in the Olympics material, um, the uniforms and on and so on. So I think for sponsors, it's vital to understand the context in which they're, they will be operating, but also um, try to find ways to mitigate these risks um, and also have dialogues with civil society organizations about the specific issues, because it's easy to say, oh, we're not involved um, in these crimes, but many of these sponsors or brands, they may not even know their own supply chain because it's an incredibly difficult thing to trace. Um, and this is why civil society organizations or, or other um, labor organizations exist to analyze and study this. Um, and so it's vital that they accept these dialogues and uh, make sure that they also operate um, their, their businesses uh, in, in, in line with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Um, and I mean, many of these brands have their own set of values and principle and you know they they are the first ones to say we don't we 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 don't condone uh for saber uh we we absolutely are against for saber or modern slavery but at the end of the day they don't even know their own supply chains so how can they say that yeah absolutely um you know you recently um co-authored an, an op-ed in the hong kong free press um I was just kind of curious to ask um, 
you could expound upon a little bit uh, about the recommendations you make in that piece, and then also what kind of resistance um, you faced um, for your activism personally, and then also from the broader um, World Leader Congress organization. Yeah, um, good question. I will start with, I guess, the challenges that we faced. Um, so personally, um, so the World of Congress were part of multiple like ongoing campaigns regarding the Olympics, um, because there's just at the moment, it's it's something bigger than just the Uyghur uh, region, right? It, it affects so many people. Um, so we, we work closely with Tibetan groups, Hong Kong groups, Taiwan, Southern Mongolian groups, Chinese uh, human rights activists as well. And um, in October, beginning of October, we actually met with the with five of the top IOC officials to um, to really have this dialogue with them. And it was five of us uh, from our side and five of them um, on their side. And uh, we, this was a very, you know, a meeting that we had been waiting for the longest time. Um, it took the IOC 18 years to meet with um, human rights group working directly, you know, with these affected communities or representing these affected communities or, or groups. Yeah, 18 okay. years. So um, it was a anticipated, you know, um, meeting and we left the meeting very, in, like, very frustrated because um, the, in their tone, uh, we understood or they clearly told us that they were not going to change their position. Um, that political neutrality was going to, you know, to be the narrative for the rest, you know, especially when it comes to China. It was, they told us the world is too, is a complicated place. I mean, yes, it is a complicated place, but um, how do you make sure that you do not contribute to uh, a genocide? So we really delivered our concerns. Uh, we had a lot of, we had a series of demands and questions, um, especially when it comes to human rights due diligence in preparations of the Olympics. Um, and they just gave us so, some empty promises um, and it, it wasn't something very coherent or consistent. Um, and so it, it was, it felt as if our personal, you know, testimonies didn't mean much to these officials. Um, they told us that they could not save the world basically uh, through the Olympics which is pretty condescending uh, to, you know, human rights activists uh, and groups. Um, we're not asking them to change the world. We're just asking them to, to respect their own set of values, which is clearly indicated in their own charter. Um, and, you know, another thing is that uh, they have now agreed to in, in, implement or include the uh, UN uh, GPs in their upcoming Olympics, but they have uh, excluded for some, for some reason, coincidentally, um, the Beijing Olympics from, from that. So for us, it was just a lot of coincidence. And uh, <laughs> so we did challenge them, but they just, they just didn't, uh, they weren't interested, basically. So we were hoping that Going into that meeting, we knew that we would we couldn't expect them to move the Olympic Games from China, but we did expect them to have some sort of um, flexibility over you know our demands and and all. But no, they they just didn't want to do anything. Um, they did not even want to acknowledge the the situation. So 
it was pretty frustrating. So I think um, from that moment, we understood that we just have to keep pressuring the IOC from multiple sides. And that's why they, there were so many different campaigns that were created. And it's just, it just acts a, as a pressuring point uh, coming from different places. So that's how we, yeah, that, that's kind of, I guess, what really motivated us to, to go after them, their reputation, uh, but also try to see beyond the IOC. Um, so we've been reaching out to NOCs, National Olympic Committees as well, um, because I think uh, they could also have a say. Um, and basically we have, I think what, yeah, two weeks ago, we in what, on February 4th, we sent a letter to worldwide governments asking for, for them to commit to a diplomatic boycott, um, which I think at this point, it's not something unrealistic uh, because of the, the gravity of the situation and the urgency. And some governments had already you know, shown interest um, about a diplomatic boycott. And so we think that this might be a strong, this might send a strong signal uh, message to China, which has already replied you know, in, in the press and the media saying that they would sanction any country um, doing so, which goes again to show that they, they're just bullies. Um, and, but we will not, we won't be intimidated by that. Um, we will continue go, to go after sponsors. Uh, and um, yeah, I think from that article, we had also highlighted like the responsibility of like broadcasters. Um, they should, you know, they could play an important uh, role as well in that if they do have the freedom to broadcast what they want. One minute on the human rights issues could do damage, you know, for China, um, but it could be really, really uh, important um, for 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 the human rights uh, for the human rights community as well. So that would be really something to to look um, to look into, and also, um, I guess, like journalists, if they will have the freedom to, to cover what they want, but also if athletes will have the freedom to, to um, express their views in, in China, that will be something uh, I think valuable. And I think also like, this is one of the reasons we're not um, asking definitely like a athlete's boycott because it could, we could use them as leverage as well. So, you know, like if they do end up going Maybe if they they have the freedom to to express their opinions and political views in China, um, that could be also something you know in our advantage. So yeah. Speaking about broadcasters, so we've seen a lot of social media activism, particularly with COVID, last year with the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's been a really a recurring theme throughout our podcast is activists using social media for their causes. So I wanted to talk about what you think of that, so social media used for your activism um, and your specific campaigns, so the No Rights, No Games movement and how you think social media could be used or, or, it's, or the, the detriment of using it. Yeah, I think social media just plays a very important part on the overall messaging. Um, it's definitely a tool that we have been using because it really de democratizes the, the information and uh, makes it very accessible to the public and uh, easy to share, especially for the younger generation. So I think 
it's definitely a tool that we have been using for, for a long time and we will keep using. However, you know, it, in China, social medias are strictly controlled and censored. So that is, I, I guess, in China, it's, it's very difficult. But outside, of, of course, like this is a tool um, that is necessary for, for the ongoing campaigns. Um, because you, otherwise you have this bridge um, between you and then, I guess, the, the general public. So using social media, you, you get to um, break that, uh, that wall. Um, and uh, yeah, it makes it just, it makes the information more accessible. So definitely an important part of our campaigns. Um, and this is also, you know, through social media, people also can uh, learn ways to contribute to these campaigns, whether it's just with one click and like sharing this or signing petitions, for example, the No Rights, No Games petition as well or knowing that they can write to their elected officials about this. And since we have shared the, the letter on diplomatic boycott, they could bring this up with their elected officials. And, you know, that, that has um, a huge, actually, uh, potential. Since you've started your activism, what has been, you know, one of the, the most positive sort of successes? What are those wins that we can sort of talk about and and the changes that you think are being made? I'm going to be frank with you, uh, working in the human rights field, uh, especially on this issue, and especially because I'm Uyghur myself, and I have like, you know, a pers- it's, it's personal. It's very difficult um, on a day-to-day basis because you, you deal with, you know, stuff like genocide on a day-to-day basis. It's very difficult. And knowing that you have family members missing and that your work is also a risk factor for your family members. Uh, I mean, since I started this work, I have completely lost any connection or any contact with my family members, relatives at homes in in the Uyghur region. So it can get very difficult and negative, but I think for me specifically, it's to celebrate the small victories um, or yeah, or just consider them as like big, bigger victories. Um, I think since I started, which wasn't too long ago, actually, I started in September 2019, but I think I have seen a definite, like, shift, um, uh, like, the general public opinion uh, on China, because people used to defend China a lot on how, you know, which, I mean, I don't get me wrong, China is great. Um, it's the CCP, I think. There, there was this... I guess some kind of misconception that um, the government was great because you know it's one of the most powerful countries and economically as well it's a very strong country. But I think it's really important to separate like that from the government and how they're governing and uh, the policies that are implemented. So I think I've seen I've seen that change in the public opinion. Uh, of you know people being more critical of the government um, and even like Chinese citizens being more critical and questioning their government, which um, is necessary, I think. And also just people being more aware of the Uyghurs. Um, a couple of years back, I mean, whenever I had to introduce myself to people and I said I was Uyghur, no one knew who, like, you know, what, what Uyghur was or East Turkestan or Uyghur region. 
And now I don't have to have that conversation um, as much, um, I would say. So I think for me, that also counts as a victory. Um, but I guess more concretely, it would be uh, on the forced labor issue. Uh, we have had a couple of brands um, signing on the call to action, um, like committing to you know ex exit the region. Which yeah, I mean those are big victories. For example, like MNS just announced in the UK that they were gonna do that. So those are all little victories. Um, and another of mine is definitely when China gets pissed off. Um, that's my small victory. Um, just last week, China, I was speaking at the UN, and um, China wanted to. They they replied to my statement saying that. Um, we should not be uh, speaking at the UN. They basically try to intimidate me uh, at the UN. And that was just hilarious to me because that means that our words, our work has, you know, some kind of influence and power uh, because they're, they're feeling threatened. So for me, those, that also counts as a victory. And speaking about, you know, so we spoke about social media, we spoke about the small victories. Um, we've spoken about, you know, athletes and what broadcasters can do. What about the average citizen? So the average person far away, um, sitting up, uh, sitting sitting up in their houses now with COVID, you know, um, being exposed to social media a lot, hearing about what's going on. But what can they do to to make changes so that they can help? Um, yeah, I'm glad that you kept this uh, for like the last section. Um, so it's. Definitely, I think recently I've seen a lot of people um, denying the Uyghur genocide um, or yeah, some kind of, you know, I don't know. It's always like coming from the lefties and I'm not sure why this is a thing, but it's not cool. <laughs> Stop denying genocides. Uh, it's really not cool, especially for the community. We're not lying about these things. Uh, we wish we were. Uh, we wish these things were not true, but unfortunately they are. Um, I wish my, you know, my family, I still had contact my, with my family. I wish I didn't have relatives missing. Um, so yeah, just, I think for people is really crucial to really understand the Uyghur issue well. Do your research. Um, if you don't trust the certain sources, there are so many different um, sources available and information available to you uh, that you can get from different places. If you don't if you don't trust BBC, you can get get it somewhere else. Um, if you're not sure, please email me. I'll give you these uh, multiple sources. But it's really important for people to really have their own sets of ideas on the situation um, and uh, understand it uh, well instead of like understanding the issue superficially. I think that's really important. And if you do need help, of course, reach out to the community. Like who else, you know, who else is better, like in, is in a better place to tell you about these uh, atrocities. If you don't, you know, trust certain scholars, just reach out to the Uyghur people um, and we'll tell you about our personal experiences because behind all of these statistics and numbers, there are real people uh, on the line and their lives, you know, and they have human stories to, to share. So I think that's really important as well to, to just reach out to these communities and uh, have a genuine conversation. And I mean, 
this entire week, I, I spent, I guess, uh, the entire week on Clubhouse, which is this new app, which is very trendy. And um, I've unfortunately, unfortunately sacrificed my sleep over this, but it's really important. Um, I think people, you sh- people who have iPhones um, should really look into it because there are a lot of different discussion rooms about this issue. And there are really good efforts of, you know, having genuine conversation and exchange between um, different people from different backgrounds, including Chinese people um, who sometimes like they ask genuine, like genuinely curious questions, but also sometimes they do try to like deny the genocide or try to, I guess, interpret the Chinese or put put forward the Chinese narrative, which may be because they don't know uh, better and that's all they have been the information they've been consuming. So I think these kind of platforms are very essential to kind of have the a genuine conversation and exchange on, on these issues. So uh, that's one thing. I guess another thing would be, you know, as global citizens and consumers, we have, we have power. Um, you have power over where you shop, right? You can decide to look into the brands uh, you're, you're shopping and, for example, Zara. I know Zara is extremely popular. I was also a huge fan of Zara before I realized that they were very probably using for Sabre from my country. So I stopped shopping there. So these are things that you can concretely do. Uh, boycott these brands who are using oil for Sabre. Uh, you can write to your MP or call them. It's really not that difficult, to be honest. You can just send an email. You'll find their information online. You just have to Google your elected official in your circumscription or region or city and just tell them about this issue make them care because these people have so much to do in their daily work like they don't have time necessarily to think about all of the issues going on around the world so it's your job as a citizen to care if you care well just write to your mp or you know your elected officials make them care about this issue um join protests uh i mean we were communities were organizing protests all the time. I mean, if it's, of course, respect, respectful of the restrictions, um, but also share things online, uh, follow Uyghur organizations, support Uyghur organizations work. Um, if you, by the way, just a plug, at Uyghur Congress on social media, um, you can learn a lot as well. Um, and just, yeah, I guess, stay informed, stay active. And I'm sure like, Becoming an ally is just also a very powerful way to contribute to the cause. Yeah. And thank you, Zimitai, for taking the time to speak with us. And just kind of to wrap up um, the conversation, one last question we have is, what do you think um, you want our listeners to take away from this conversation? What's the number one thing that you want them to remember? That's a really tough question. But I think uh, what I've said before is that behind all of these, you know, there might be some entities, governments, whatever, they're making this a very political question, which yes, it is a political question, but it's also a humanitarian uh, question as well. This is also, this is mostly about human rights, right? Uh, We're not, uh, we're mostly asking for our human rights, basic rights to be respected. So just keep that in mind. And also, behind all of these numbers, like I said, there are real people living the consequences of these government's uh, policies, governmental policies. So please keep that in mind. Um, you know, there's a lot of Chinese propaganda or just general propaganda and uh, disinformation out there. 
especially on social media, it's really easy to get lost there. But please, please, please do keep in, in mind that as Uyghurs, um, we're not we're not here to invent a bunch of horrible stories. We're telling our stories. And, you know, victims are usually, it, it's really hard for people to believe victims most of the time. And especially like last couple of weeks, people have been denying the uh, BBC report on rape and sexual abuse and, claim, and asking for, for proof. But I mean, someone is raping you, you're not going to film that person or that experience. So just be careful with the words. Be careful about your claims. Just have some sort of um, human de decency, um, I would say. And uh, yeah, be kind. Thank you so much, Sumrete. That was an extremely powerful discussion to everyone listening. Um, I hope you take away from this all of the information that you need and please implement these important pieces of advice in your day-to-day -day lives. Um, you heard Zimrete say that she, you can contact her. Zimrete, do you want to give us your social media? Sort of sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Zumret Erkin. Uh, or uh, just follow our organization on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Uyghur Congress, and you'll find uh, information there. Great. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. We hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our website, declarationspod.com, where we have um, supplement information and links to additional resources. And a big thank you to our sound editor, Max Parnell. For declarations and many of our more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you everyone for listening. This was Declarations and my name is Mona Gasson.